Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about governance as code. It's actually one of a series that we're going to be starting. Uh, and in this case, we started out discussing what is governance as, as code and then dug in specifically into identity and how important knowing who is doing what is essential in a governance process. And along the way, we talk about really interesting things about like infrastructure as code, trust, logging, audit, all essential components for governance. If this is your first time hearing about governance as code, you will learn a lot here. And if you already know the topic in the back half, I think you will find some fantastic uh, conversations and questions. I hope you will enjoy the podcast. Do you want to, um, you joined us today specifically uh, because the topic is governance is code, um, which I'm super fascinated in uh, anything as code, but specifically if, you know, I think, how do we, how do we think about governance and, and governance is code? So, I mean, governance is a multifaceted problem. Like, um, you know, I think it, it stands on a bunch of different legs. Uh, you know, security is got part of a core part of governance for folks. Um, compliance is cost optimization, operational excellence, um, and so you can have these different parts of it. I, I think you know, semi cliche, but like being well well managed, so to speak, is I think sort of one of the hallmarks of of all those things. If you're cost optimized, if you're sure compliant, if you have operational excellence, um, you know, then you can say things are well managed. Um, and then the as code part is really just about taking, you know, treating this the same way we treat our, you know, our DevOps artifacts, you know, our infrastructure as code assets, being able to, you know, apply versioning to them, do PRs and code reviews, and then have them roll out via GitOps deployments. Um, and I think, you know, you know, the analogy to infrastructure as code is interesting because, you know, when is infrastructure as code done? It's never done. Right, it's it's always an ongoing thing. It's they're always going through evolution as application architecture changes. You know, one of the things I've seen with the governance aspect is that it's it's also evolving along those same patterns. The organizations adopt new services. The underlying cloud providers make changes to capabilities. Um, the organization realizes they have a long backlog of things they want to get to, um, and that that changes and evolves as their their knowledge of the space changes as well. Um, and so, in that same way, it's a sort of this constantly evolving thing as well. Um, and so being able to apply sort of the same methodology that we do to infrastructure care to governance, um, it makes it much more transparent, I think, to, to the rest of the org. And also, um, like, uh, like we, you know, when I started off, um, sort of in this space, I was, you know, at Capital One and it was making this big push into the cloud. And I think part of, you know, part of it was, uh, when you're in large organizations, the one of the bigger challenges is actually just communicating what the current policy is. Um, and so um, being able to have that encoded in an artifact that was readily readable to engineers, to developers, to auditors, to, to, uh, to security folks, ended up being a, a, a significant form of the collaboration to understand um, what that particular environment might be beholden to and what was coming in the pipeline. And what, what would be the way you'd encode that? I mean... So uh, I built out a tool called Clock Studio, um, again, from that time at Capital One. And, you know, 
uh, what it was replaced. It ends effectively just a YAML DSL. Um, it is, uh, and you know, there are many different languages around this topic. Um, you know, and some of them are in you know idiosyncratic languages that are uh, logic based. Um, some of them are you know full programming languages. Um, but I wanted something that was uh, very readable and that we weren't programming in YAML, but that we could easily identify intent and that it was easy to, to both be productive to author as well as being very simple to read. You know, in the same way that, you know, when you're writing code artifacts, you know, um, you're going to have many people on, you know, if the team if the project is successful, you'll have many people reading it, you'll have many people contributing to it, but being able to, you know, people read code more than they write code, let's say. Um, especially as they're getting onto a project. And a lot of this comes from sort of, you know, living in an ecosystem of open source where that that's that's very much the the, the de facto, um, where you have lots of new people coming but, in. So, so but would that. that YAML file like what would it specify? Would it would it define sure. like a security posture or who can log in? Like how I, I'm I'm trying to think of like I have an idea of what governance is in, in a in a generalized sense, but I'm interested in what would it be encoded as. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, at the time, Kisuin was there and was replacing what was a lot of one-off scripts. Like people had sort of just-in-time solution-oriented, you know, engineered something. Um, and I saw the, the growth of those one-off scripts, which didn't really have testing, didn't really have great operations around them as more of a part of the problem. So in terms of what the policies in, in these YAMLs are defining, um, they're identifying a particular resource type in a, in a cloud. Um, they're defining a set of arbitrary filters um, to find the interesting set of things. And then they're taking some set of actions on them. So I might want to find all of the EC2 instances that are under 5% utilization that are our particular instance type. So that's my interesting set. And then I want to take a set of actions off them. So maybe I notify the owner, hey, you're oversized, go resize this. Or, or maybe I say, I'm gonna do that and then I'll, uh, or maybe I'll, I'll stop the instances as well. Um, or maybe I'll do online resizing, or maybe I'll chain together multiple workflows where I give them a little bit of grace time. And then I you know start to dial up the, the heat on the enforcement activities. And then right. additionally, there's a separate notion there around sort of execution mode um, uh, and, and source as well. Uh, and execution mode in custodian speak is um, really about tying into the cloud native provider's capabilities around doing uh, serverless compute uh, so that you can do real-time response as API calls are happening that you're actually able effectively to introspect what they're doing uh, to do the enforcement directly in real time. I mean, what you're describing to me is an element of orchestration. Very much so. I mean, in, in many ways, uh, what Custodian is is effectively a cloud orchestration tool. Um, okay. What we apply it to purposes on business value, and it you know we we label it different things just because that fits into sort of the problem domains that people are trying to solve for. Um, people don't really always ask for a cloud orchestrator, um, but they ask for a tool that can help them achieve different business values. And so governance ends up being the, the sort of the biggest tent umbrella that um, encompasses all those different business values. That is an uh, interesting take on governance because 
my picture of governance is significantly different from that. Uh, probably uh, influenced because, because of my background, because I, I worked in uh, blockchain-related uh, companies before. So for us, governance, or in, in the blockchain sense, governance means just uh, codifying uh, the decision-making responsibilities on the chain itself. So, um, I, I agree. Yeah. It is it is a chimera in some sense. Um, the but I, I think in different industries, governance tends to sort of in some cases will more closely align to compliance standards um, and sort of encoding those policies. Um, but even in things like but when you look at the overlap, you start saying, well, is that a compliance thing or is that just a baseline security thing? Or, you know, is is being cost optimized part of go falls into FinOps, which I think is now an emerging practice, but could also be considered part of best practices that we want to enforce. Is centralized logging part of governance or is it good operations? And so you get into this sort of movable line on the different things on which policy falls into which bucket. Um, which if you take a broader step view, they're really all about helping an organization be well-managed in the cloud uh, as under the rubric of governance. But I, I very much agree that there's there's definitely nuances on where people identify the word to, um, for sure. Yeah, and uh, on the flip side, it, it, it also makes sense to, to look at it um, from a holistic perspective uh, as you're doing, uh, of course. Um, it, yeah. It makes it a little bit uh, more difficult to prevent scope creep, but uh, I, I see the usefulness uh, also of doing that. So I, I have a couple questions because um, I think um, I see it in, in two ways. Um, so one is as couple uh, is you're you're saying that it's it's enforcement of security policies in in some form or another. Uh, so, for example, you know, when I when I establish connection to my VPN, um, I, um, uh, you know, the company checks my laptop, to make sure that it's in compliance with, you know, whatever policies it's said about security. Um, so there's that aspect. But I also worked on a project when I worked. I, I did some consulting work with State Street. and. Um, they were putting in this whole system to uh, look at um, trade orders to make sure that they met compliance requirements. So that gets into the regulatory aspects of it. So it's it's not IT per se. Uh, there was obviously a whole <clears throat> system to to support this, but the idea was that it, it would go through these, you know, look at each of these trade orders to make sure that they met all the regulatory requirements. So I see it as sort of there's there's two, these are two aspects and they're, and they're kind of handled differently. Absolutely. Like, I mean, you get into, like, you know, you sort of walked into the application aspects of compliance and, and really that that is an application domain. Um, really what, you know, with governance code, we're really trying to focus on is some of the infrastructure aspects because the application aspects really have to be handled in the application. Like if you're looking at GDPR and you've got a database record, like, you know, that's an application concern. There's not really, there's only so much um, we can, you can manage from the infrastructure side, but on the infrastructure side, 
you know, say all data must be encrypted at rest, or we don't want you know, dev accessing prod, um, et cetera. Like those things are much more tenable uh, and manageable um, without sort of directly engaging uh, into the application code itself. Well, but on the GDPR and stuff, you can in incorporate some infrastructure in, you know, there's certain types of data that can't cross country lines, for example, like medical data, et cetera. So okay. you can say, you know, data from a certain certain uh, database, you know, employee medical records database or whatever, you know, would be at the, not, this wouldn't be done at the application level. This would be done at the infrastructure level that says, you know, <laughs> that data does, you know, stays within these IP addresses or whatever. Absolutely. And you can, if you can segment out by sort of compute environments, like this is a, you know, PCI level two environment versus like this. And so you know, this data is this particular account is GDPR, or therefore all data sovereignty applies. Um, there's definitely some aspects that can be bounced out of the application layer back to the infrastructure layer for sure. Um, but when you get to individual records in a, in a database, maybe less so. I guess there's there's a part to this which is systems following good process and doing the right thing. And there's a part to it that's actually like confirming that it like so I, I guess I'm I'm struggling a little bit on this idea of I want a process that makes sure my hard drives are encrypted. That that strikes me as a infrastructure as code process. It is I, and but I mean, sorry, sorry to interrupt the, um, you know, a lot of what, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is about enabling and empowering your development organization, okay. but making sure that regardless of what technology choices they're making, that the organization policies are still in effect. Like, okay. you know, if you're, you know, and we can talk about preventative versus reactive and DevSecOps and other aspects of it. Um, but like if I'm in an organization that that's large and probably have Terraform, Ansible, CloudFormation, shell scripts, you know, all trying to provision infrastructure or I've got Kubernetes doing it in behind the scenes. And so yeah. at some point you need something that is enabling that choice, but is making sure the organization is still in a compliant state, uh, with regards to the policies it want to affect, who it wants to affect. Um, <sighs> Uh, this is and this is where the place where I thought you were going to start was around like a Terraform plan that somebody reviews before you know as it's being executed to make sure that it you know fits a, a, a I'm watching companies do that right um, yeah and so I think as an order as an industry we're definitely seeing a movement towards moving this a lot of these things earlier in the pipeline moving this into CI moving this into DevSecOps yeah. I, I see that. I see that. I mean, the telecoms do a lot of that because any, anytime we're going to be rolling out a new, uh, you know, change to the configuration of the infrastructure, we we run a, like a whole. There's a whole governance process around approving that, and some of that's automated now. <laughs> yeah, and it actually gets you know all problems are easier to fix. You know, the, the closer to uh, the origin that you know. Right. They, they are. Well, it, I can give one example, which is that um, we have a process for um, certifying that when a circuit's ready to be turned over to a customer. And we were doing it by hand. 
And there was like 200 steps. And, yeah, you know, there was a lot. You would type in some commands and blah, 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 blah. We automated the whole thing. <laughs> um, and now, you know, we just run this automated script. And, you know, 85% of, of them just sail through the script. And then we just turn over to the customer. Hey, we're going to start billing you because, you know, it passed all these check, 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 check. And, you know, the other 20, the other 15%, you know, usually somebody has to go in and see where it failed and, you know, fix it or whatever. But that's an example of where it's, you know, we're just following a bunch of, poli we're just applying a bunch of policies, <laughs> make sure everything's all, all there. It, are the policies for a process like that codified? Like, are they in the code or are they, can, can somebody point to them and say, here is the governance for that process. And then if you needed to tweak it or tune it, you could just change like the configuration or does you have to look at the process? Okay. It's both. We frequently have to look at the process first. I mean, we, we started with the process, then we automate it, right? But there's nothing stopping us from changing the automation and tweaking it. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a, go ahead. It's, it's interesting when we look at it from the perspective of sort of cloud infrastructure APIs, because doing a, a pipeline process um, is very powerful, gets a you know, fix, fixing problems faster uh, and closer to the developer is always better, I think. Um, but then you, we run into the challenge of, is the organization using a single process for deployment um, across all the different organizations and teams that you can insert that into? In some cases, yes, in some cases, no. And so, or do they, do they, do they have, the developer have rewrite in the console in their sandbox? You know, like you get into nuances of that going even deeper. Um, but then we look at addressability of that across the different sort of value domains. And one of the interesting ones that where you actually need, you can't go preventative because, always because you need usage data is around cost optimization. Like, mm -hmm. To understand something's being underutilized, you actually need to see the utilization per se um, to evaluate it time. So there's different, definitely different like problem domains on the organizational side. Do you have a single pipeline that you can insert this into? And then there's problems on, or questions as well in the value domain where it's still useful to be able to um, look at the infrastructure as a, as a whole um, uh, in terms of what's actually there and still do real-time response in terms of being your near your programmer. So that, that there's definitely a lot of that going on with, uh, you know, the SD-WAN stuff, right? Because that is, we're literally taking um, policies about performance of applications. And obviously we can't affect the application itself, but we can affect the performance from the network perspective. So if there's a degradation in the network, we can say, hey, you know, if there's not enough network bandwidth, th these are the applications that should get highest priority, um, you know, to get through. That's one, one aspect of it. But we also have, these are the applications that are going to cross over the, the better network. Um, so we have a lot of customers that, you know, will maintain an MPLS network and then a, then a you know, an internet broadband network. And they'll say, you know, I want this application to go over the MPLS network, um, you know, unless that goes away. And then then let's knock off these other applications off the broadband network. And can we want to keep this one? This one has highest priority. So that, that's a lot of business governance type type intelligence that gets converted into code, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, and on the and on the network side, you, you've got like quality of service guarantees, failover, yep. path routing. Like, yeah, I mean, it, um, when the network is your business, <laughs> then there's a lot of more business logic in there for sure. Right, and we we actually automate our SLAs. You know, we, we'll we'll you know, there's a contract. The customer will say, you know, we we guarantee X amount of uptime. You know how we execute that? It's all automated. We just put the metrics into our systems, and you know. We just track it and, you know, we give the customer credit if we fall below. It's actually cheaper to do that than argue with a customer. But I guess I, I was looking for, is there like, I'm thinking about like Chef Inspec or something like that, where they're running a process on systems to do an after the fact confirmation. You know, when you're talking about the governance as code, does that mean integrating in, you know, the type of governance checks? How how far Right, because this is what I, I could see a very narrow, like, yeah, when we set up a system, we run a, we run this scan, we ensure that it conforms with whatever that system's profile is supposed to be. Or when we set up a network where we have a profile, we, we confirm that. Um, Beth, some of the stuff you're describing to me is like an analysis phase where we're, you're, scanning, you're scanning back and saying, okay, let's look at, you know, systems we set up or, you know, infer, infer, and you know, run literally what we're doing. It. We're looking at log data for uptime or jitter or right. whatever. You know, we have a number of metrics we're looking at. We're, we're, we're polling. We're looking at poll data. We're looking at log data. We're looking at monitoring data. We're translating that into a credit, SLA credit, because it says, oh, it didn't meet the, you know, it's just a calculation. Mm -hmm. Didn't didn't meet the uptime requirements for this customer. Customer gets a credit for this month. I think a lot of the the power on like so I, I think you're right that there is effectively a polling or analysis phase of it, um, but there's also this notion of being able to do real time changes and in that context it's being able to do it effectively as a stream processor, effectively as an introspection on the actual cloud infrastructure APIs or the the, the infrastructure APIs themselves as as things are you know mm -hmm. you launched an instance. Was it compliant to corporate policy? And being able to do that, like a P99 of like a few seconds, is a it just changes how people perceive the governance in the environment because then it becomes effectively you know business real time, won't say hard real time, yeah. um, and then being able to say get the get like a Slack message or an email, um, sort of in that in that same way where you're communicating, collaborating, sort of like hey, you didn't know the corporate policy means that we 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 do TLS 1.3 on this particular load balancer in this particular environment. Um, and be able to sort of communicate back to the developer in real time, and it makes it a very different feel than, <clears throat> say, some traditional tools I've seen, which end up being like big walls of red in somebody's office, and uh, like versus, um, yeah. um, you know, sort of, and, and then requiring sort of a whole process of you know, around triage and remediation after the fact versus being able to do it in real time on the on a stream. So the governance is code to you is is about the proactive, like making it part of the process. Is the yeah, and that's why I very much identified just some of the ability to do this in fully preventative modes, and as far as being able to directly incorporate the. But you're also wandering into intelligence there, right? And machine learning. Uh, event driven. Yeah, uh, event driven, right? Yeah, it's event driven and it's stream oriented, but. It's it's still very much um, defined attributes and defined configurations that uh, or our policies. Like when we talk about ML in this context, I feel like we're more dealing with 
anomaly detection sort of capabilities, which don't mm-hmm. always, you know, in a wide enough environment. I'm not uh, talking about that. I'm okay, talking right. about policies that say if if a certain level of bandwidth is being used, add more bandwidth. That's a policy that has to be driven by a business decision because that costs money. Right. So the, the, the customer will will have agreed in advance. You know, right now we don't do that right now. We tell the customer, hey, you're you know, this circuit is running hot and, and maybe you want to add some additional capacity and they can go in and do it. And it takes them a few minutes. But but we don't like automate that because there's a cost. You know, the customer's like, man, it's, you know, all of a sudden the circuit's costing me $100,000 a month. <laughs> Why is that? So, that, so that's where people, you have to go. <laughs> but where people talk about ML, they, they mean, like, I mean, to me, that's very much still a rules decision, um, an encoded rule in the policy. Um, like, potentially, you could say it's an expert system over time, but it isn't like when people talk about, Machine learning or reinforcement learning, um, you know, th- is that they get into different sort of scopes. And, and yeah, I'm talking about intelligent networking, which is where where the behavior of the network can can be looked at, and then you add or subtract resources based on the behavior. And you can you can create governance policies around that. As adaptive. Yeah, adaptive policies, correct. Would you then apply the policies? Because this, this to me is where it gets really interesting with infrastructure as code is to be able to include the policies into your pipelines so that it's not just like when you're delivering, you're delivering infrastructure with a compliance check built into it, or you're maintaining infrastructure with a compliance check built into it. Yeah. And I think the the interesting, so I think there's a couple different ways of it, like, you know, and again, uh, there's some specifics here about cloud providers, um, yeah. you know, like um, AWS recently did a capability around cloud formation they call cloud formation hooks. It's an interesting capability. Uh, it, it, it smells a lot like Lambda, but it's actually not Lambda. It's actually running in the service team discount um, where you run your own application code there. Um, but it's not on the Right, like it, it's to say, you know, however you wanted to deploy that cloud formation, you did it on console, or you did it in that GitHub action, or that code build, or that Jenkins. It's still before we actually deploy the stack, we're going to inspect it and make sure that all of your hooks say it's valid and and, and good to go. Um, and so that that that's an interesting capability that gets into fully preventative, but is also potentially divorced of the feedback for the developer in the pipeline. Um, It'll get, it'll get the back of deployment time per se, um, where a lot of the real-time remediation is still effectively you know, deployment time feedback um, as opposed to CI time pipeline feedback. Um, the, the, for the CI pipeline stuff, I, I think it, it really goes to um, where you know, is the organization at a, a capability maturity model or a central point of deployment that they can say, this goes into all the pipelines. Um, or this check is is established and integrated in. Uh, I think we're, you know, I think that that's becoming more and more. Uh, I think where things are going, or where I've seen a lot of places go. Um, there, but there's always there's always the gap, um, and the gap analysis on where 
oh, that GitHub action that was doing deploy didn't have it. Um, and sort of tracking that back down ends up still needing the, the, the scan aspect um, on the environment. Or you take something like um, Kubernetes, like, you know, where where you, you're now going from, say, say your organization is primarily Terraform, but now it's adopting containers and Kubernetes. And you know, that Kubernetes infrastructure, those, those manifests are going to create load balancers, or, you know, persistent volume planes on, on, on disks, et cetera. And so just making sure that those things are also part of the pipeline. So now you have to have the expansibility of the pipeline to come to different forms of provisioning, um, as well as being um, always maybe ensuring that the checks are always in the pipeline. Sorry, dealing with this a little bit of stuff in the background over here. No worries. Um, no, I, I think what you're hitting on to me, and this is, I think, an interesting aspect to this, is the orchestration component. So we're decoupling, what you're describing here is decoupling um, systems by putting them through triggers. And and so when, which I, which I, we're watching happen, right? Get, get ops is, I think, both wonderful and a little terrifying from a decoupling perspective. Um, if you're triggering, if a, if a pipeline or a self-service operation is triggering an event and that event is then doing additional pipe, a new pipeline step, how do you confirm or apply governance? I, actually, there's two questions. How do you, how do you, I can see it actually as a good place to add governance because you've now decoupled things. You can add governance so that that webhook can accumulate more and more governance operations in it without troubling the upstream provider. That strikes me as a really good um, decoupling place. How do you, on the other side, though, tell the user, like you were saying, that you failed a governance check? So the, well, there's a couple interesting things here, because you can also get, in your event base, you can also get into event feedback loops, which is a whole different topic. But uh, I think there's, there's what we've found out is there's generally good patterns that you can always do, which prevent a lot of the feedback loops, which is effectively always checking your initial conditions um, as you go to affect a change in, uh, on the resources um, so that you're not you're not um, self-triggering as far as um, the, those changes into a, a feedback loop. Um, but uh, to your question on informing the developer, like a lot of it ends up being sort of associating identity. Um, toward of the, the mutation itself into in the environment. And that's typically captured in the event itself. And then you have to sort of, we, you have to go from that infrastructure identity back to, you know, potentially human or from, or to a CI job and then to a human or to a group. Um, and, and in many ways, and in the most contexts, organizations have already done that. Like they've already created tags around or labels around their infrastructure, or they're already scoped uh, a GCP project to a team. Um, and so in many ways, that that identity issue is, is already resolved. And then it's this question of what is the correct routing for communication? Is it Slack? Is it email? Is it Microsoft Teams, et cetera? There's a really interesting governance piece that you added in there around limitation of scope and, and, and identity in, in these pipelines. Because you're right, you can't especially as, as you do a longer and longer chain of operations, if you lose track of the, of the source, of, if, you can't, if you can't trace it, then you have a, you have a governance problem in that, in that respect. And there, I think there's additional challenges with DevSecOps in that the DevSecOps systems end up um, creating a lot of impersonation. 
uh, between different. So if I, if I have a Jenkins that's operating across multiple parts of the team or multiple applications, when that Jenkins goes to make the infrastructure change, the Jenkins identity is what's associated to the change. And so that's where I'm saying that you have, like typically you'll have these secondary markers to garbage to labels or whatnot. But I think it is something that has become, you know, we've seen this become the attack vector effectively, that overprivileged CI ends up being the, the you know, the root box into an organization's environment. And so we're starting to see that getting more addressed, I think, uh, or become more at least aware of it and trying to secure that, that particular aspect. Um, That's but a very, very, very real concern. Yeah. It's getting better. There's definitely still a, a very large gap, even in terms of the, the impersonation aspect you talked about. I know a lot of people are using things like HashiCorp Vault for dynamic credentials, but some of the challenge I've seen is are you properly associating that metadata with those credentials to have traceability all the way through the logs to where the person that kicked off the CI job, Vault grabs credentials, their credentials are now being, now assuming a role in an AWS account. And are you able to trace that all the way from the cloud trail logs to what was actually performed in the account back to who initially kicked off the CI job? And we need to produce a proper audit trail for that. Yeah. And you need to also ensure that you minimize the reusing of credentials on your CI itself. Like you don't want all of your CI pipelines to use the same vault credentials because otherwise you're invalidating the, the downstream uh, separation of concerns. It's an interesting problem. And we get into a lot of work specifics on some of the how they've done it. Like I, I saw one org that uh, let 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 you role assume the same role. So that, and but the session name effectively identified the user, so they could basically impersonate <laughs> other users. Um, it was unintentional. Um, and I think the cloud, the audit systems on the clouds have gotten a bit better as far as both allowing you to uh, uh, be able to track that that chaining, say, in the audit log, but as well as being able to do addition capabilities as far as attaching metadata to the session itself on the role soon. Um, and, you know, what we're starting to, like, you know, GCP, I think, just added in capability for um, actually going from AWS credentials into GCP service account credentials on a, on a transient basis, so no, nothing persistent. Okay. Yeah, using the YDC. Yeah. Seems like a, right. It seems like a, a colossally bad idea to be allowed to impersonate users. There you when you have central CI, it, it just it unfortunately falls out as a, a nature of of having a really powerful CI that needs to be able to operate in these different environments. So trying to see things devolve, like you're trying to see people use GitHub Actions, which you can tightly scope to that particular project's capability set. But when you have these centralized CI systems that are larger and are operated across multiple environments, and they end up becoming that shared infra that can reach into everything. Yeah. But that assumes that it's bug free. Well, that well, it also assumes that you're going to, you know, transitioning the credentials through that type of a process, especially if you've, you're, mm. you're moving to more and more centralized, is particularly risky. Um, yeah. It on on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, it also grants a certain flexibility, and that uh, you can delegate. Um, permissions based on the use. For example, one of the 
Uh, one real use case of impersonating a user, or at least um, assuming an, an user's access uh, access level, is um, CI pipelines that trigger pipelines from another project. But let's say you 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 your organization creates a generic pipeline to publish a a container. This pipeline does uh, like it does your static analysis. It, it verifies that the the container images conform to your organization specs, which is great for governance. It means that you have one place where you have observability. You pro, you provision you provide audit logs. You have you whenever you roll an update, you update to one only place. But in return, this pipeline needs to have access to the source code that from which the container gets built. So that means that this downstream pipeline needs to impersonate the user that triggered the upstream pipeline yeah. in order to, to, to fetch that. Uh, as a security person, all I can say is that is a gigantic security hole that I, you could drive a truck through. It, it's a compromise. Like just wait, ways to secure it. Yeah. One hopes, yeah. The, the, there, there's equally big or, or equally significant security problems if you if you don't do impersonation. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it's a sliding scale. It's very hard to translate. Yeah, there's different ways to, to structure. It, I think as well, like you could have that CI job that's triggered actually being. An orchestrator over the other CI jobs, where it's it's you know the impersonation aspect is um, delegated only to the orchestrator job, so to speak, that's doing the rollout, the deployment, the build, um, and that is therefore just carrying the the, the direct upstream identity. Um, that, or you can have systems that are sort of going back in through the front door as opposed to doing the impersonation. That they're simply triggering out HP endpoints that are. I think you're getting into potentially, you know, application-oriented semantics, but like that are not necessarily. I guess they do have. A, never mind. Still has to happen. I do to get to the front yeah. door. Yeah. yeah, it does. It strikes me that if you know you're you're you have to have a choice. You're either going to give the users the rights to take all actions and then pass their credentials through the system. Which has which is fraught with challenge because now the users can walk into the systems and do whatever they want, so there's there's less control. Or you're going to have to have um, a delegate where the system doing the automation has the rights to make the changes, and um, you then have rights to make the request. But the system is ultimately carrying the credentials, um, and both have pros and cons. I, I I know from our perspective, we typically do the latter. Um, but you can narrow you can narrow the scope considerably of of what that you know basically of of who's allowed to use that token or how that token can be used. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of people with cloud keys running around that are hooked into automation systems that have huge power in these systems. Um, eesh. So, I mean, is there a governance as code component for that of just making sure that you're, you know, somebody's not taking your the, the system credentials and making making changes to it? 
or are we are we are we going down the wrong rabbit hole i mean it's an interesting rabbit hole i think like i think there's capabilities as far as already going to space around credential utilizations and, and different things yeah. on that but i mean you know we're, we're also like if we go into where the field's going we're also looking into you know supply chain management because you know that docker image bill was just pulled a bunch of stuff from npm and i don't know if i trust any of that either um and so now but like now we're into a very different problem space um and and, and honestly I, I don't know that that one gets solved very easily without you know having some getting down to the language repository level and looking at the open source ecosystems that we're building on top of to start having you know verifiable chains up for publication back into the registries but that's a maybe a, I mean, its own rabbit hole as well well i i think what we're all saying it you know when you talk about pipelining like this or infrastructure as code or governance as code what we're talking about is a end and you know it's an automated process you know, but I feel like as code should be more than just automated. Um, but we're well, that gets back to our earlier process. comment about uh, intelligence, injecting intelligence. Oh, where we actually yeah. do some analysis as part of that yeah. process, right? That would ensure like the alignment of- from a compliance standpoint. And I mm-hmm. think to the the infrastructure as code piece. The only way I see it is if you start to walk backwards from you understand, you investigate what resources were provisioned, you have a a given account or user associated with those resources, then you map that back to the CI pipeline that technically should have created or updated those resources and perform essentially that that chain uh, along the way. Challenge you get into is scenarios where AWS provisions resources on behalf of other AWS accounts in terms of the, the automatic service provisioning stuff, but then you would just have to specify those exclusions of, I know a dedicated AWS service role perform these particular actions or update these resources. Right, so that, that gets your audit. And then you map that back to the user that committed the code. Right. And have hopefully full traceability in terms of right. action performed and actual outcome in the environment. Right. We, we actually have run into something along those lines uh, recently. We have, um, we have a mechanism for our customers to, you know, we have a private network for managing a lot of our systems. And we have a mechanism to allow our customers to get into the private network under very restricted access terms to their own systems. So we use a TACAC system and, you know, a lot of safeguards. And um, we have a customer that came and said, well, that's all well and good, but that's really designed for actual human users, right? Um, we want an automated system because we want to we pull down some, we want to use some APIs and pull down some data off the system. And it, it's read-only, doesn't matter, right? But still, our access system is not really designed for automating such activities. So um, that we're we're busy trying to figure out how we can how we can give this customer um, automated access to his system so that our you know so that he can pull logs down uh, without having to jump through hoops once a month to change all the passwords. <laughs> or you know because he uses two-factor authentication and 
blah, 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 you know, all that stuff that's really designed for authenticating human users, not automated users. <laughs> I, I actually think what you're hitting is a huge, huge challenge in all of these systems in that we, there's a, and we've talked about this before, right? There's a big delta between human auth and machine auth and, mm -hmm. and reliably having long-term machine auth um, with rotation of keys and trust and things like that. I, we don't do a particularly good job. Um, and interestingly, I think the governance is code question really, you know, I, and I think we, th this is the path we followed. We're like, okay, wait a second. We're doing governance as code. There's machines in inspecting our systems and interacting with our systems. And there's handoffs from the people to the machines and the machines go do the work. And now, and so we, we sort of went down this path of, okay, how are we confident that the machines are trusted, right? That the accounts that are doing that have, have correct scope or um, have, that we can try trace back to the, the people or the event that actually caused, you know, started the process. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, at the, the, you know, I think there's, I think it's is a generic, a generic and hard problem. Uh, I think yeah. you know, at least we have the tools on the infrastructure level to say there are no permanent key credentials anywhere. Um, <laughs> everything is is transient, and then we can start introspecting and coming out to more fine grained things like, hey, if you're on a network edge, then you shouldn't have more permissions than than just this enumerated set, um, and starting to, to sort of walk through on structure to to understand what are the permission scopes where are they retrievable from uh to start limiting out on things i think some of that gets capable i think we still get it back into some of the challenges on ci being over like i need to create a new user or an im role or a new like where where some of that those capabilities need to be locked you know put into different ci infrastructure frankly um when it's manipulating the infrastructure itself than from application infrastructure, um, just be able to get the create the clean separation. There's also the matter of, and, and you kind of touched that, that, like with with not only managing credentials but managing identity. So like, yeah. ha having sh like short-term tokens is, is is great, it's an improvement. Um, but no, you again, want one with, time. With, we yeah. want one time on uh, tokens, yeah. right? Yeah, but 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 also like you we want you want to pair that with an ident identity. Yes. Like it 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 there's a reason why why like long as the the, the way you have the triple A. It's authorization, authentication, and yep. uh, auditing. Like you, you 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 I mean it it's it's great to have authorization, but uh, uh but uh you also need to Authenticate that and say like right. yes, you have access to this, and you need to have the audit to, to, well, to say yeah. like, hey, yeah. what you're doing here is unusual. Well, authorize break, hit the Authorize says you have authority to do X. Authenticate says you are in fact who you claim to be, and it can be a user, it could be a program. So, um, and, sorry, Klaus, you also mentioned a third thing about. Uh, was it attitude or sorry? What what you're auditing? Actually doing? Audit. Audit. Yeah. Audit. Okay. So you need an audit to to make sure that if something goes wrong, you'll be able to figure out where where it went wrong. <laughs> that's the that's the fourth leg. Yeah. And on the last part, which again, which which needs the audit, 
but that's like be able to to break the glass and on cut off access um when when you see unusual behavior which goes hand in hand with, with the automation part as, as well um like reconciliation loops with, with terraform for example like if, if you're comfortable with with it it's great but you need to be able to, to say at some point hey my terraform system is doing something weird i need to stop it from doing it something weird and, and, and that's uh, and that's where the yeah. break glass comes in yeah that's it's really hard to stop processes um ideally yeah right the process has ways to say do a check and verify wow what a great conversation this is definitely part of a series uh and please come in check out our schedule at the 2030.cloud See when we're going to be talking about this topic, if it's of interest to you, and join in. We want your questions, ideas, and thoughts. These are roundtable formats, and having more voices makes the conversations better. So I'll see you there, and we'll talk about governance as code. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.